Our passage this morning is certainly about prayer. It's not surprising that prayer is in there. But, but more than that, our passage suggests a win-win. Now, you probably know what a win-win scenario is, right? Uh, you're thinking that's a, well, maybe there's an issue going on, a conflict between two people. We need to find a solution to this that, that both people can win. That's not quite what I had in mind. I was thinking, maybe it's the grandparent in me, thinking something more like this. We get a call from our kids. And they're not sure how it's going to work yet. Either they're going to come visit with us, or they had this other crazy idea. Maybe we could meet them in Disneyland, and they're going to cover it. Wow. All right. Well, when you're, when you're old like me, you know, traveling can be a nuisance. And, and so uh, just, just being able to be at home and have them come and, and get to pre- play with grandkid, and, and that'd be great. But then again, they're going to they're gonna take us all to Disneyland? Right. I can't afford that anymore. You know how much it costs to go to Disneyland for a day? And I'll get to ride with little Mikey? That'd be pretty sweet, too. That's it. I... I I don't have to try to steer them. I don't have to encourage them as to which decision they're going to make. Either one of those is good. It's a win-win, right? Whichever way that works out, that's going to be a win-win. You're in school. You're looking at your schedule for the next semester. You've got this class that you've got to take, and it's offered twice. There's an early morning class, I mean 8 a.m., which means you got to get up at 7 a.m., or at least by 7.45, right, college students? Uh, That's early! There's also a class at 2 in the afternoon. Well, that would work. But then again, that morning class, that's really early, but, but that prof is really good, makes that class fun. And if statistics could actually be fun, wow. So, early morning, it's going to be hard, but fun. Later in the day, 2 o'clock, if I get that section, well, that's okay too, because I get to sleep in then. I'll be more awake for the not-as-interesting class. Either way, then, however the schedule falls, whatever the school does, it's a win-win, right? I'm not worried about it. Okay, what about you're on Wheel of Fortune? Anybody here know Wheel of Fortune? Let's say you're on, you know, that's the show your grandparents watch, yeah. Wheel of Fortune. And you made it to the bonus round. And you spin the wheel, and he takes out that little card. You don't know what's in there yet, but he takes that little card, and he holds it tight, and he walks you over to the place where you're going to stand, and you're going to see the puzzle, and you guess your three consonants in a vowel, and somehow or another, you solved it. You guessed it. Who knew that the thing was manila envelope? But you guessed it. You were there. And now he's about to open that little card. What's going to be in there? Could be a card. Could be money. Might be 100000 Might be fifty. It's going to be at least $36,000. Or it might just be the BMW SUV instead. You don't really care at this point. Cash, car, doesn't matter what. It's a win-win. Or, 
finally. Maybe you're in jail. It's serious. It could go either way. You believe you're innocent of any charge, and yet the decision is coming up just a couple of weeks. You could be vindicated and set free. You could be condemned and very shortly executed. Either way, it's a what? Doesn't seem like it, does it? But either way, that's a, according to Paul, at least in that circumstance, a win-win. You say, how can that be? I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to talk this morning about a win-win witness. Okay, A win-win witness in Philippians chapter 1 from verses 18 to 30, second half of, half of chapter 1. And we're going to see that we have a win-win because Christ can be honored in any circumstance by choosing to do what is spiritually best for others to live out the gospel of Christ together. That Christ can be honored in any circumstance, whether it's this way, whether it's that way. And we're going to be surprised at how Paul looks at his situation and how he prays somewhat differently than we might think. Philippians chapter 1, if you're using the church Bible in front of you, you'll find us on page 980. And I'm just going to read the first uh, couple of verses, 18 to 20, or the, or the second half of, of verse 18 through verse 20, to, to look at that first statement first. Christ can be honored in any circumstance. Paul's just talked about, uh, well, all of verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Doesn't matter what's going on, what people are doing, why they're doing it. Christ is being made known. That I will rejoice in. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with all, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life, whether by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Father, would you help us, help us this morning to, to Lord, uh, Open our minds that we would challenge our own perceptions. Father, that we would let our conclusions, even our priorities, Lord, be, be um, examined under the light of your truth. Father, that you might uh, give us courage that's beyond what we have, that we might use by you in your grace toward others. Father, show us how that which seems like there's no win here for us. In fact, uh, this is exactly where you can work in ways that we wouldn't imagine or think. Lord, uh, out of this passage this morning and where it touches our own hearts, Lord, would you show us something of yourself that gives us a greater confidence and trust and joy and faith in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Christ can be honored in any circumstance. Paul is confident of God's working in the midst of this present adversity. Remember, he's in confinement in Rome. He was, he was returning from his third mission journey, and there he is in Jerusalem, and he's at the temple. He's fulfilling a Jewish vow. Now, he had traveled with some Asians from Ephesus, and so it was assumed by his Jewish pharisaical opponents that he has brought those Asians, those Gentiles, into the temple area where they cannot go, a crime which is under Jewish law, punishable by death. And so there's this huge riot that ensues, and he's arrested, and he's going to be, he's going to be, um, first of all, he's going to be beaten, but he, he claims his citizenship. And, and for the next two years, he's in, he's, he's uh, basically held in the garrison at Caesarea. He's in jail. While one political official after another tries to figure out what they're going to do with this hot potato named Paul. In the end, they're going to send him, well, why don't we just send you back to Jerusalem and you can, we can kind of sort things out there. Paul is made aware that there is a plot against his life that if, they, if he travels back to Jerusalem, if they escort him back there, he's likely going to be assassinated along the way or certainly once he's there. And so he uses his citizenship and he appeals to Caesar. It's not merely to save his life. God has told him while he's in this confinement that he must also go to Rome and declare the gospel there in front of Caesar. And so he knows he's going to Rome and the citizenship is simply the ticket of how God is going to do it. And so he's appealed to Caesar. To Caesar he must go. Off he goes to Rome, and there he is waiting, not apparently in a dungeon, though we don't know that for sure. He might be merely under house arrest, but under guard 24 hours a day. So one guard after another in shifts of apparently four guards a day. Somebody's always with him. He's got a captive audience, so to speak, as he writes his letters and um, uh, rejoices in his hope. We know Paul's a guy who sings in prison, so certainly Paul's a guy that sings and prays under house arrest. And uh, the guards can't get away from it. They cannot escape. So there's Paul in that situation, and his outlook is this. I'm about to stand before the crazy man. Yes, the emperor is Nero. Nero is not known for the stablest of mind by this point in his emperorish career. And uh, he's going to go from bad to worse. But, it's good. but uh, right now, we don't know where... Where, where, where Nero is really going to land here, and Paul doesn't either. He could be vindicated. The, the, the emperor could say, I have no interest in this Jewish stuff. This has got nothing to do with me. This man and his message is no threat to Rome. Little does he know. But, and he could send him free. He could set him free with, and, and establish a precedence, and that's actually end up what's going to happen with the first imprisonment. Or he could take this as an affront. How dare you say that there is another Lord, Jesus, that ought to be worshipped and the emperor should not be worshipped? How dare you claim such a thing? And he could have him executed almost on the spot. And Paul says, well, that's a win too. Because to live is Christ, he says, but to die is gain. We're going to unpack that a little bit more. But he's confident that because of God's Spirit, he is not alone. 
the Spirit of Jesus Christ is going to work his deliverance, and the church is praying. The prayers of the saints matter here. Paul is confident. He knows that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Deliverance from what? Either way, he's going to be delivered from the emperor's authority. Whether he dies, whether he's set free, he's going to be free of these bonds, free of this confinement. He will no longer be bound. That is clear. But he also says, it's, my, it's his expectation and hope that I am not going to be ashamed, but with full courage now as always Christ is going to be honored. I'm going to stand there before the most powerful man in the world and in full courage, he says, strengthened by God's Spirit and your prayers, I am going to stand in full courage and declare the gospel, make what Peter calls concerning Jesus the good confession. As, Peter made a, as Jesus made a good confession before Pilate, he did not back down, he did not deny at all who he was. He didn't sugarcoat it for Pilate. Pilate says, don't you know that I have authority to, to condemn you or to set you free? And Jesus says, you got nothing. You got no authority except what is given to you by my Father in heaven. I don't answer to you. I answer to him. Jesus declared a good confession with all courage, knowing that his Father had him. And, and Paul says, that's what I want to do. Is there a risk that Paul could back down in the pressure of the moment in all of the power of Rome set before him, as he looks death in the eye, could Paul step back in fear? Could cowardice creep in that he might say less to Nero than he ought to say? Oh, he'll still be true to the gospel. He won't deny it, but maybe he won't press the point as much as perhaps he boldly, courageously should. Is that possible? Is there a danger of that? If you think, no, not Paul, well, somehow you think more of Paul's humanity than you think of your own. Because any one of us are certainly at risk of, of drawing back, of holding back, of keeping quiet when something for Christ needs to be said. Paul himself describes that a few pages back in, in Ephesians chapter 6. He closes the letter in a way that surprises us. He says, be praying in verse 18 of, of Ephesians chapter 6. Be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making, making supplications, requests for all the saints. And watch this, verse 19, and also for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth. I don't know. I've read the book of Romans. I never thought Paul was lacking for words. And yet he says, pray for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth. I know this is not, this is not the prayer that you pray for Bob on Sunday morning. You say, no, 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 not more words, Lord, less. But really, really, the right words at the right time guided by the Spirit that penetrate the heart like that two-edged sword which the Word of God is. That's what he's asking for here. 
to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That's how Paul asked this Ephesian church that was also dear to him that he'd spent much time with. That's how he asked them to pray for him. And he asked them to pray that for him. There is a danger, at least he sees it in himself, that he might not speak boldly as he ought to speak. And he's writing to the Ephesians from the same Roman confinement that he's writing to the Philippians. So I think Paul's prayer is concerning his witness that is soon to come. It is not so much concerned with the outcome as for him to have courage to not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it. Even Nero, if he would. Now, how do we pray? For those around us, you've got a friend right now that's in trouble. You've got a friend right now that's sick, perhaps. You've got somebody that's facing some pressures and difficulties, and they don't know how. You've got somebody that's going to go to work tomorrow, and there's going to be people around them that they might have the opportunity to talk to something about their hope. Do you pray for them about that? We don't think of it, do we? you've got a friend going to school tomorrow. Maybe you and your friend are both going to school tomorrow and you're going to be around people. You're going to be in a class where, where faith might get mocked or where, where other students around you know nothing of your Jesus. You might have an opportunity there. You don't know. Are you praying for your friend? Is your friend praying for you? To, to have courage to speak in the opportunity as it unfolds. This is one of the ways that we must be praying for one another. Imagine the, the encouragement that it would be in the midst of your work. You got a text from a friend that said, just wanted to let you know that in the midst of your work this week, I'm praying that somewhere along the line, somebody will ask you to give an answer, a reason for the hope that you have. And God will help you in that moment. What encouragement that would be. Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit. It's not just that prayer is going to encourage me and I'm going to be encouraged and somehow I will pull myself up and I'll be able to say the right thing. No, no. Through the prayers of the church and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, God is going to deliver me from being ashamed and is going to give me full courage so that Christ is honored. Even in this circumstance, whether it is by life or by death, that Christ can be honored in every circumstance. We hear Paul is confined. He's been sidelined by false accusations and political schemes and plots. And yet Christ can be honored no matter which way this goes. In the midst of sin. In someone's life that it gets uncovered. Oh, I don't want people to know that. What are they going to think of me? When, can Christ be honored if my sin were exposed? Well, we think that, no, 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 if Christ is going to be honored, I, I've, I've got to pretend to be okay so that I don't. Uh, but wait a minute, I, by, by pretending to be okay and good and righteous rather than fallen and broken and human and weak, I'm pretending that I don't need Jesus quite as much as I actually do. Which honors him more? 
Well, Paul says, and not to, in, not to encourage us towards sin, but Paul says where sin in abounded, grace abounded all the more. That God is glorified where his grace works in the most difficult of circumstances. One of the reasons our men's group loves the Freedom House ministry is those guys come and visit us, spend time with us, and they are real. They tell us where they've been. They tell us of the brokenness that, that, that of, of what sin has cost them and has taken from their lives. And yet, look what God has done. Look at the new freedom Christ has given them. And, and look at the new courage to speak of him and to begin building trust in their lives again, with families again. And it's a wonderful thing in the, in the worst of situations. You don't rejoice in the brokenness, but you rejoice and look what God can do in the midst of it. In a situation where I can't do it on my own, I need help. I don't want to tell others, well, they're gonna, you know, I'm, I'm needy. And yet, didn't Jesus say that by this will all men know that you're my disciples? When you have love one for another, and when others see us giving of ourselves even for one another, it's look how they love one another. That was the first century church. It can be ours as well. God, Christ can be honored in every circumstance. When life is good and when the kids are beautiful and the work is great, Thank God for his grace. But do not consider those good circumstances the measure of God's favor toward you. Paul's in confinement. His last three or four years, according to his plans, have been ruined. And yet God is right in the midst of that. And in the midst of that, the church is still strengthened even by these letters as well as the record of his steadfastness and his patience and courage even in times of trouble. Encouraged to trust the Spirit of Christ and encouraged to pray as church for one another so that Christ can be honored in any circumstances. Well, what does it take in the midst of a circumstance, what does it take for Christ to be honored? Paul's facing a choice here, or he seems to imply that he's facing a choice here. What he's going to do, he's not sure. Let's read on from verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why I'm confident that whatever way, by life or by death, that's not the point. It's a win-win. To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, life or death, I can't tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. First of all, Paul, in considering his service and future in relation to Christ, he prefers to be with Christ, which means he prefers it's okay if Nero, if, if Nero condemns me, if this is the end of my run, if my ministry is over, if I'm about to be poured out as a sacrifice on the offering of your faith, that is okay, he says, because 
I get to be with Jesus. I think of a, of a, of a martyr or a, or a faithful servant, almost a martyr in Romania years ago. Named, his name was Richard Vermbrandt, and he founded the Voice of the Martyrs, uh, that ministry that tells the stories of those who have even laid down their lives for their faith. And uh, Richard Vermbrandt was arrested by, by the Romanian secret police because of his testimony for Christ. And he was one of those pastors that stood up against the communist government and said, we cannot go along with them. We cannot help them. We cannot give them church and theological cover as the church in Germany did to the Nazis before us. We cannot do that. And he rallied pastors to stay true to, to Christ and God's word and not yield. And he endured much persecution because of that. And he was threatened with execution and he said, oh, okay, you have the, you have the earthly power to do that. But first, let me tell you what you're going to do. He said, uh, you will make me a hero and a martyr of my faith in Jesus. People will know that my faith was so real that I was unwilling to deny him even unto death. And the faith of those throughout the church is going to be strengthened because of this. And, and all that it will mean for me is I will leave this weak and painful body, and you will usher me, you will speed me right into the presence of my Savior, Jesus. You can do whatever you may do. I just wanted you to know what you are doing. And I said, well, I guess we can't kill him then. And they moved on to other plans and tried one thing after another. And, and, but his perspective was that to depart and to be with Christ is far better. That's counterintuitive to us, isn't it? In the midst of our mortality, we would read that this way. We would say, for me to live is best, to die would be Christ. If I have to lay down my, my, my life for the sake of the gospel, that would be like Christ. But I'd much rather live and enjoy life in this world on a beautiful sunny day, even if it is a little cold. That's what I'd prefer. And when our health is threatened, it pops up before our eyes that we want most of all, anything, I want to live. There's something in there, in, in us, that wants this life that God has given. And that's, that's not wrong. I'm not debating that at all. But I would suggest that Paul saw his life differently than we do. Or maybe we can be tempted to. Certainly, Paul saw his life different than the culture then and the culture now sees it and evaluates it and measures it. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. For me to live with whatever opportunity I have in this body, in this flesh, as long as God gives me life and minutes or hours or days or months or years, those are the time to pour myself out as Christ for others. The time for gain is future. The time for gain is when I'm gone from here and I'm with him. I have got an allocation that I don't know how big or how long it is. And in this allocation, this is where I can be and live by faith as Christ for the sake of others. And that's how he weighs the decision here. Look at it again. How to choose it's what is spiritually best for others. To, to depart, to be with Christ, well, that would be better. That would be first choice. But, verse 24, to remain in the flesh, 
That's what's more needful or necessary for you. You Philippians, maybe the Ephesians too, maybe the church across Macedonia, the, the Thessalonians also. Corinth is still a bit of a mess. They could use more work. And there's Spain yet to go to. So to go, to check out. You know, Paul saw some things in the third heaven that time when I, I, I think he, 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 his, his nearest to death experience when he was stoned there in there in Lystra Derbe and left on the road for dead. And he was revived. And he said, I was caught up into the third heaven. He said, I don't know if I was dead or not, but I saw things in, the, in, in God's heaven that I'm not permitted to tell you. Because if he told us, maybe we would run there. And we should not. God would rather, rather than quickly running us to his presence, God would ha rather have us to live out life here as Jesus did in the midst of hardship and pain and suffering for the sake of others. This is our opportunity to know him by picking up our cross and following him daily. We don't know him merely by driving down to the mall and picking out a new suit. That's not how we know Jesus. How we know Jesus, well, it would be driving to the mall and buying your pastor a new suit. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We don't hardly wear suits anymore. But, but, but that giving of myself away for the sake of others, that's where we know Christ. That's the point I want to make, okay? And Paul says that's, that's, that's even better. That's even better. It's more necessary for you. And so he says, convinced of that, knowing that's what's better for you, I'll remain and continue with you. I think that's what God's going to do, he says. Why? Because that's what looks more like Jesus in life on earth. For me to stay and continue, even through hardship, even through physical suffering that Paul endured. To remain and continue his ministry for the sake of the gospel to others. How do you know what to choose? You've got decisions this week. I don't know what they are. You don't know what they are yet. But you've got decisions this week. And can I put this forward to you as one of the measures that you've got to use? One of the measures that is going to bring you joy is what is best for them? What is best for others? Not what is best for me. Not what is going to advance my situation. But what is best for someone else? Let's, let's, let's turn our decision-making up on its head a little bit. Christ is honored in any circumstance when we choose to do what is spiritually best for others. Remember, back in the first half of the chapter, verses 9 to 11, that when we love with knowledge and insight in order to choose that which is best in order that we may bear fruit. That was verses 9 to 11. Choosing the best which is bearing fruit, and the fruit is Christ-likeness. So when I choose, let me give you an example. I remember a grandfather. He's gone now. But he could have been gone many years earlier. He could have departed and been with Christ, and it would have been far better. One of the things he faced was if he wanted to live, he had to start dialysis, and he had to keep going. He had to keep doing it. If he stopped his dialysis, he would die. Dialysis was not pleasant. When he first started it, he had the middle-of-the-night appointments. Three times a week, in the middle of the night, he had to get down to the dialysis center in order to do his dialysis. The longer you're on, you're on the program, you, as other people don't continue... You, uh, you get better slots during the middle of the day. But, but at first, you get the night slots. 
And it was no fun at all. But he chose to do that. He made a choice. Not merely I have to fight and do whatever I can in order to live. That wasn't the basis of the choice. His choice was this. I have these grandkids. And I intend to be there for them. Especially through their high school years. He lived next door. He saw them every day. Often he picked them up after school right here at Prairie. And they had, his grandson told me later, Grandpa was my best friend. And Grandpa loved Jesus. That made an impression on his grandson, on his granddaughter, that he would not have otherwise had. For him to depart and to be with Christ would have been far easier. His faith was clear. And yet it was necessary as he understood it, to remain for them. He looked just like Paul's thinking here. And he was an everyday kind of guy. You see, Paul's not so exceptional here. Paul is merely Christian. And so are you. And so am I. And we're going to be facing a decision this week, and there we can say, I will choose to do what is spiritually better for them. It might be discipleship or parenting. It might be taking a firm line on parenting instead of easily giving in and having much less fuss. Why? Because what's most important is their progress and joy of faith. That's what we pursue. That's the goal. The ultimate goal is progress in their faith, for them to have joy in faith. Nothing is more important than helping one another, helping somebody else fall a little more in love with Jesus, their Savior. Nothing is more important than that. We are pulled in a lot of directions. We live in an age of distraction. We've got to intentionally guard ourselves. You've got to build some disciplines and put some fences, whether it's time on the phone when the people around you need you. You be the only one that's not on the phone and the only one thus that's available to talk to by somebody else who really needs to talk instead of be on the phone. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but we've got to, got to fence off some of the distractions in our lives. A guy told me this last week how, how he... he he, all of a sudden, he gained several hours in his day. A couple of hours in every day he gained. All of a sudden, he did not have it, and all of a sudden, there it was. I thought, what would you do, drop out of school? He said, no, I dropped out of TV. <laughs> we live, and, and, and many of the distractions that we choose, is there anything really wrong? I, that's not the point. Is there anything wrong with it? Is asking the wrong question. It's what is spiritually right for the sake of somebody else about this. That's the right question. That's the looks like Christ in my life question. Christ can be honored in every circumstance. If we choose what is spiritually best for others to live out the gospel of Christ together. We're in this together. That joy of faith, I'll add, that progress and joy of faith, being in love with the Lord, that's attractive to the people around us. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I'll hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
Not frightened in anything by your opponent. You see, there's that fear, there's that hesitancy, there's that drawing back again. No, no, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Joining him with him and his sufferings, he's going to say in chapter 3, engaged in the same kind of conflict or agony, hardship, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul wants, above all, for their lives together to, some, to, to in some ways reflect the gospel, to be steadfast in spirit, striving together for the gospel without fear, willing to suffer for Jesus' name. That's his view of the ideal church. This is what church in Paul's mind's eye looks like. Here are a group of believers who are striving together, not with each other. They are striving. They are locking arm in arms. They are steadfast in the spirit. They are committed together to the things of God that they're going to strive for and work for together for the gospel without fear, not being intimidated by the social pressures around them. And they were many there, even as they are many now, willing to suffer, willing to give of themselves what they could rightly keep for themselves, willing to give of themselves their energy, their comfort for the sake of others. The danger seems to be the Philippian church could be left scrambling in various directions with different agendas, competing against one another and other churches while fearful of what is happening in the culture and in the world. I think that describes the evangelical church in America as well. Scrambling in various directions with different agendas, competing against one another as if other good gospel-preaching churches were our competition. They are not. While fearful of what is happening in the culture of the world around us, which simply is announcing in blazing bright letters, this world needs redemption. This world is packed full, and our county is too, of broken people in a broken world who are in desperate need of our Savior, just as we are. What an opportunity God has given us. How will we best step into it? By standing firm, steadfast, together in one spirit, with one mind, one shared agenda, striving side by side, not against each other, for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened by any adversary, any opponent, anybody standing in the way. Let me remind you of our church's shared vision and mission statement. Some of our leaders got together last weekend and we, and we uh, uh, worked through some of this and uh, went through some exercises around that. But just to remind us again, it's in the bulletin every week. It's not perfectly worded, but let's, let's work with it. BP Church is a family in Christ, a family in Christ together. That shared identity is not in various socioeconomical matters, but it's in Jesus. It's all level ground at the cross. Shared identity in him. One family, God's family, heirs of God, joint heirs of Jesus. God's family in Christ being changed by God's truth. There is truth. He's given it to us. It's right here in his word. Jesus says, I am the truth. 
And this is about him. Being changed, being transformed. None of us are there yet. But that progress and joy of faith. We being changed together. And so we, we want to, together as whole church, as well as together in smaller groups, we want to be growing together, being changed by God's truth, impacting others by his grace. What can I do? Well, Jesus says, apart from me, nothing. Apart from me, Jesus says, Bob can do nothing. But he said, you abide in me and I abide in you and you will bear much fruit. And and that's what discipleship will look like. Impacting others, not in our schemes, not in our programs, not in our ministries, but God working through these things and us in his grace. What does that look like? Very, very simply, Pastor Ryan just this last week or two, was reading a book called Simple Church. Now, Ryan's not here. He took the kids out for kids' word time so I can talk about him. Ryan was talking about this, kids, this Simple Church book, and they, and they, and they said what's most helpful in a, in, a, in, a, in a, and I think partly it's in the midst of a distracted age, let's keep things simple, right? And Simple Church is what's the path for discipleship, that it's clear, it's understandable, who are we and what are we trying to do? There can be all kinds of expressions of it, but what is it about? And it's this. In fact, if I could say, there are many, many things you could do in the church. There's a bulletin full of opportunities. And these are not things that, these are not attractions. These are not extracurricular activities, but these are opportunities. And you should not be doing them all. But where in here can you fit as you choose three essentials? I will be worshiping together. We didn't want to cancel services this morning unless it was absolutely necessary. Even if there were 50 that could come, well, Jesus said two or three, but even if there were only a few of us that could come because of the roads, we didn't want to cancel again. Because worshiping together, whole family together is important. Worship is not about me or you or any one of us. It's together for God. Worship is not an audience of one. Worship is not only, our worship together is not merely for God. It is for one another. We are singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, according to the book of Colossians. That you sing for somebody next to you who can't sing this morning, and their faith is strengthened. We worship together as whole family. We are growing together with other growing believers. Worship in a full room is wonderful, but people don't know you and you don't know them the way that you need to to grow together and come alongside one another in real life. So growing together in some smaller group where I am growing together with other growing believers where they know me and I know them and I'm praying for them and they're praying for me. Why? Because your prayer for one another matters. And who is praying for you this week that you would have courage to speak up and not draw back when that opportunity comes to share your hope? Who's praying for you this week for that? If you're not in a, some smaller group, some connection with other believers, maybe no one, and that should not be. So I want us to be worshiping together. I want each one of us to have a place. This is my group where I'm growing together with other growing believers. And there's all kinds of different manifestations of groups like that. All the way from, I better get slipped this in somehow, choir on Monday nights, right? Choir starting this Monday night. Got canceled because of the weather last week, but choir is starting. And not only do you sing together, you encourage one another 
they share something out of the word together from one of our elders. They pray for one another. Worshiping together, growing together, serving together. Every one of us needs a place. This is not something just because I just like to do this. No, this is something. God has gifted me to do this, and I do this for the sake of others. It's necessary for someone else. This is where I give myself away for the sake of others. I would love that the conversations in our body, after worship, when you meet somebody new, say, oh, have you found a place where you're growing together with others? Have you got into some kind of smaller group yet? If not, let me help you. Or have you found a place, where are you serving together with others? It's not just I'm doing my thing. It's where am I serving together with others? Those of you that know where that is and you, you, you are locked in there, tap somebody on the shoulder. Say, hey, I, God has given me this that you would be great here. Come on. Come with me. Otherwise, Bob could ask for help for whatever ministry on Sunday morning and everyone in the room thinks that somebody else is going to help. None of us do. That knowing someone else and bringing them into that place where they could be serving, giving themselves away for the sake of others, that's huge. I only want you to do three things at Brush Prairie. I only want you to do three things. I don't want you to do 20. I only want you to do three. What are they? Worship together. Come back next Sunday. Do that. It is good for you. It is good for us. And the Lord loves his children gathering. Be growing together with other growing believers. We are not lone soldiers here. And have that place, one place. And it might be that you're equipped here for this somewhere else. I would love that we were, we were volunteering, we were engaged in places all across our community. I would love that if we were Prairie High School's first go-to center of volunteers when they need somebody, that we had a presence as friends in that school because they're our neighbors and when they need help, we're going to be there. I would love that. But where is the place where you can give yourself away for the sake of others? Christ can be honored in whatever the circumstances are, no matter how difficult they seem to be, by choosing to do what is spiritually best for others in order to live out the gospel of Christ together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for your grace and protection, Lord, that even gathered us together this morning. Father, we thank you that your word challenges our own perceptions about what matters in life and how we choose. Father, we pray this morning that by your spirit, you would first of all give us the understanding, the insight, the illumining, turn the light on based on your truth that shows us what is really important and what are mere distractions. Father, help us to choose the best based on not simply what's better for us, but what is most needful for somebody else and to be willing to give ourselves there and so share something of Jesus. Lord, would you give us that kind of courage that doesn't draw back when the opportunity comes. And Father, again, we now, Lord, we think of somebody else with us this morning and we pray, Father, for their testimony in this next week. Give them the joy and the privilege of sharing their hope in Jesus with someone. Lord, prepare the opportunity and give them courage in it. We pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. As the ushers.